Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to Romans chapter 14. And while you're turning there, we just finished Romans chapter 13, what you might call Anger Arc Part 2. The first seven verses dealing with, well, submission to the government, and the rest of the verses talking about our demanded love. We follow God's law by putting agape love as the highest priority as far as our neighbor is concerned, fulfilling what might be called the second kind of righteousness, or righteousness coram mundo. But this is all wrapped up in chapter 12, 13, 14, and so forth, talking about how Christians relate first to one another and then to the rest of the world. And now, having talked about the world for a bit, talking about our duty to submit to governing authorities, and yes, including the one exception regarding if the government demands that you do something evil or against God's will, now we turn back to intra-church relations with chapter 14. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living." Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Now time to go to the first verse, and we're going to look at what this passage says and what it does not say. Because it is easy for us to get the general sense of what St. Paul is talking about, but it is incredibly dangerous if we take it too far one way or the other. And you'll see what I mean. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What do we mean by weak in faith? 
Well, in context, with everything St. Paul is talking about in this chapter, it is people who don't have a solid grasp of the freedom they have in Christ. Oftentimes, this manifests as a personal struggle with sin that is attached to former religious commandments or a former way of life. For the church in Rome specifically, the issue was Gentiles and Jews bickering over former laws, the Mosaic commandments regarding diet and festivals and things like that. This is why St. Paul goes on to say, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now that immediately is a callback for us, eating only vegetables. Who else in scripture ate only vegetables, at least for a while? Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 1, beginning in the 8th verse. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel serve as a role model for people who are in a foreign situation. They were in Babylon, surrounded by pagans. And the pagans, particularly the Babylonians, had invited and even commanded Daniel and his friends to live as the pagans do. This would mean violations of the Mosaic law concerning diet. This would mean eating food sacrificed to idols, because after all, the king had close relations with the priests in Babylon, and that means if they sacrifice a goat to Moloch or Marduk or whatever, they will find themselves eating up that barbecued meat. The king had that privilege in addition to the priests. So Daniel says no. And he must have been a powerful role model for there to be people in the Roman congregation that would become vegans on account of their place in Rome, where you can't trust the meat. Maybe it was offered to Mars. Maybe it was offered to Jupiter, the Roman chief god here. Maybe it was pork. It was just hard to tell the difference between pork and venison or whatever else they were eating. It seems to me that the people of Jewish descent in the Roman congregation became Christians, but they felt as though they would be letting God down, or even letting Daniel down, by not continuing to follow his example. 
Imagine that. You become a Christian, and all your life you have been raised up to believe that the evil pagan Roman Empire that conquered your homeland, that nearly enslaved everybody, that was squishing your people, you're now in their capital city, and you become a Christian. You know in your head that you are freed from the law. You know that there aren't any restrictions on whether you can eat shellfish. You don't have to wear, like, prayer shawls anymore. You can buzz your head, shave your beard. You have so much more freedom than the religious Jews do out in Palestine or all across the diaspora. To give that up, to give up those habits, those traditions, to give up observance of this part of the Torah that you had drilled into your head since childhood, to just give that up feels like you're betraying God, feels like you're betraying the heroes of the faith like Daniel, and it feels probably quite a bit like you're letting your people down, your kin, everybody out there who is doing all of that. Now, add to this the pressure that you have from your non-believing relatives. If you still live close to or with your mother, your father, your cousins, those who do not believe in Jesus yet, hopefully they will convert, but they don't believe. And you're afraid of what they're going to think of you if they see you suddenly acting and living like these pagan idolater Gentiles. The pressure must have been immense. The guilt must have been intolerable. And you feel all of this at the same time as your pastor and as this apostle, Paul, as they're telling you that you have great freedom in Jesus Christ. Sure, you understand that you have freedom and you have faith in Jesus, but it is a weak faith weakened by these pressures, this guilt, everything from your past life before God saved you. This can be seen in today's context, too. I've met people that formerly were Calvinists that are now Lutherans, or they switch over to the Roman Catholicism, and they have a very, very hard time letting go of the regulative principle of worship, where Calvin and his buddies more or less said, you have to do church our way because we are going to say what worship is in accordance with the Old Testament. And God hates it if you deviate from that. You're an abominable pagan offering strange fire to God if you have a picture of Jesus or a crucifix in your church. This is evil. So then these former Reformed Calvinist guys go to a Lutheran church where there's a lot more freedom in worship and suddenly now... <laughs> they feel awful because they're looking at these paintings and icons of Christ and everything and going, oh my gosh, have I fallen to the Babylonian sect? There's a real feeling of guilt there. St. Paul says, don't quarrel over these opinions. You really should be at peace with one another and do not judge somebody for having those feelings. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. If you were to go up to another believer in your church and you notice that the 
regional potluck for your denomination. There's beer going around and he's not drinking a thing. Maybe you find out at some point that he's a former Mormon where the quote-unquote word of wisdom dictated that he should never, ever, ever touch alcohol in any way, shape, or form. Are you going to tell him that he's a dumb cultist? Is he going to tell you that you're a slovenly drunkard? May it never be. You should not despise each other for these differences. If he has a harder time letting go of this, that's okay. Be at peace with him. St. Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, an individual might still have an opinion. If somebody comes out of Scottish Presbyterianism with their hard Sabbatarianism, where they don't do anything on Sunday except go to church, and then go home, and maybe they read their Bible, but that's about it. They don't do anything because of how they read the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And uh, he knows that you're out running errands on Sunday. It's the Lord's day. You rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins. You rejoice in holy communion. You go out to Carl's Jr., and then you decide, you know what? I need some groceries. Let's go ahead and pick up some groceries on the way home so we can have a nice barbecue. Cool. Awesome. Oh, man, I forgot I need to sweep the deck before I do that. Let me sweep the deck. And your Scottish Presbyterian neighbor is looking at you going, how dare you? Well, each one of us is measured by one measurement, one judgment regarding our salvation. Do you hold to true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a baptized believer in Jesus Christ? That is what is going to determine whether you stand or fall. Somebody who has weak faith, maybe that's the only way they're going to believe is if they have these little rules for themselves. Or maybe there is something prior to that, prior to their belief, where they think it is wisest for them to continue on in that tradition and rule. Somebody who is a former alcoholic, who was delivered from his alcoholism by becoming a member of the Mormon church, and then he becomes a real Christian after that, but he still goes, I just, I can't touch the sauce, man. Okay, he has a rational self-interest behind this. It's a matter of opinion. There really is such thing as adiaphora regarding worship and practice in many, many spheres of life. But you shouldn't judge one another for it. Don't call him a teeta-tailing dork for not drinking a beer with you. And don't call your Christian brother an evil drunkard that's going to run over some kid while he's driving drunk on the road or something like that. No, we're not there to judge each other. We're there to love the Lord together. Now that said... Another application of this, since us Lutherans might be high on the horse now saying, <laughs> we don't have any problems like that. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. You might have a friend that goes to a free Lutheran church where they have simplified liturgy, and you might go, ugh, that's so disrespectful. For that matter, you might even have a friend that goes to the <gasps> contemporary worship service. Oh, why do they even have a contemporary worship service at this LCMS church? How dare they? This is clearly insulting God. This is not the faith of our fathers. How dare we do that? Why are you judging him? Or in the Concordia system, I've heard a rumor 
that the Concordia colleges are having a movement for the women to be wearing head coverings in church. And there are people that have pointed out that, you know, all the women out there in all these churches across America were practicing head covering until like the 1970s. And we should go back to that. Okay, you have your opinion. And if you are a woman that wants to cover her head when going to church, if that is something that you value, given the advice from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, okay, rock on. If you like higher liturgy, fine, all right, rock on, go ahead, excellent. That's even commendable, I think that's very healthy. But if you're like, listen, I was in Baptist churches all my life where we never did liturgy, and then I became a Lutheran, and, you know, I don't feel comfortable with this extreme high church stuff that I saw when I first became a Lutheran, so I want to go to the contemporary worship service and maybe ease myself into it a little bit. Uh, cool. you got to do what you got to do. If you're feeling weak in the faith and you're having a hard time with your freedom, that's okay. We're all right here. We don't have to fight each other and judge each other over these things. Instead, we should honor the Lord together and rejoice that people have become Christians. Now, that's what St. Paul is getting at. But, and this is a big but, that does not mean tolerating real sin. If somebody appeals to this passage to say, yeah, I live with my girlfriend, um, I have freedom in Christ, and you're clearly uh, weak in the faith, so uh, don't bother me, don't judge me, that's not what St. Paul is getting at here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, he says very plainly, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. If this is outright sin that you're committing, you need to stop. And it is right for your fellow Christians to tell you to stop. There is room for adiaphora in expression of worship. There is room for adiaphora regarding lifestyle, regarding what one eats and how you exercise or whether you drink alcohol or whether you prefer certain holidays over others. Absolutely, there is adiaphora there, but not when it comes to real sin, in which case Christians are called to judge one another. That's a hard command. This is the same guy writing it in Romans chapter 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Period. End of story. So don't say, I can drink like a pig at a trough here. I am going to slam that whole six-pack of IPAs in public. You can't do anything about it because I'm a Christian and you're not. No, the rest of Christendom has to look at that guy and go, quit it. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I've had my run-ins with heavy drinking before, and I've had to work on that. It's been a problem for me in the past. I know this. I don't have the freedom to say I can just get trashed every night. No, I have to work on my self-control consistently. Now, St. Paul on the topic of holidays says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Do not judge the guy who says, Ah, it is Septuagissima. Aren't we going to have our traditional Septuagissima celebrations and our observances? And everybody else looks at him like, um, have fun with that, bud. <laughs> Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, he says in verse 5. Is that a bad thing? No. 
you can celebrate something. You can have these personal opinions. The gospel has freed us in many senses to have opinions about needless things, adiaphora, stuff that is not essential doctrine to the faith, and essential practices like Holy Communion and baptism and preaching of law and gospel. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now this goes all the way back to chapter 12. What is your core motivation in everything you do? St. Paul, being a good pietist, says, Everything in your life, including eating and drinking, observing a day or not observing a day or not eating and not drinking, all of that is something that you can say, I do this for God. This is part of my personal devotion to him. If it's not, if you are weak in the faith and there is an external pressure causing that, if you're not going to give that up for some personal reason, like the former alcoholic example, that's fine. But you need to find a new reason why you're doing it. And it is doing it to honor God. That should be that reason. Not because of these external pressures. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God is the one who will judge a lot of this stuff, not you. Period. Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. Leave it at that. If you have a friend who is a former Roman Catholic and you notice that he still carries around a rosary and he still has his icons on his wall of Mary and the saints, don't judge him. God will judge him. Maybe you can have a conversation with him, but not a quarreling conversation. We are told to seek peace with one another and to love one another. Now, there is a case in which maybe you should talk to your brother if their habits or their tradition or their expression of their freedom in Christ is maybe a bit unhealthy or unwise. A big argument often blows up regarding horror movies. Personally, I love horror flicks. I really do. And I love the month of October. I enjoy Halloween. I love watching all sorts of horror flicks. I like the memento mori of it. And sometimes it's just goofy and you don't take it seriously. My wife and I dig horror films. That becomes a problem if, say, I have an entire wall of horror DVDs on my shelves. It becomes a problem if I'm starting to watch some of the really, really dark and really, really nasty movies out there. Oh yeah, I would want my brother in Christ to tell me if I got too much into it. If suddenly we start dressing up like goths and making ourselves about that aspect of our Christian freedom, and they go, what are you doing? 
you really you really should talk to somebody like me about that if I take it too far. The same thing goes with a guy who has his Christian freedom and he likes to listen to gangster rap or some profane music. Maybe he has the freedom to do this, but as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not everything is beneficial for us. If he starts talking with a potty mouth or if he starts getting interested in the criminal lives of some of the gangster rappers that he's listening to, yeah, Somebody should warn him because he could be putting himself on the path to sin. Let alone the fact that he's already sinning if he has a terrible potty mouth. That's something that needs to be worked on. So we have that kind of issue. And it goes the other way too. If somebody's leading this monastic lifestyle and they're starting to push it on other people where I'm really strict in my faith, I'm really strict in my diet, I'm really strict about what I take in and what I put out. Everything has to be incredibly about God. And by the way, you're in sin if you're not like me. Somebody's got to talk to that guy. He's starting to be very, very close to having the puffed up, arrogant heart that trusts in its own righteousness. And that's going to lead him to sin. So we need to look at that guy too. That's something to talk about. That's something to maybe debate a little bit about for the good of your congregation so that people are not led astray. But when it comes to the expression of your Christian freedom or limiting your freedom on account of your own weaknesses, we really should approach each other with compassion and acceptance. Call it common grace, if you will. Loving one another and looking out for one another well, in the way God commands us to love one another and look out for one another. Now, something to bring up, because souls are going to get worried about this. Each one of us must give an account before God. That's how St. Paul ends this passage. Yes, you are still saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are washed clean by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are made free from the bonds and shackles of the law to live as he wants you to live. How you used that freedom is going to be something you're going to need to talk about to our Lord. Did you abuse your freedom? Did you not enjoy your freedom enough where it kind of makes you look faithless, very weak faith indeed? How did you do? There's like a performance review that we're all going to go through as Christians, and we do well to really examine how we are living before God to see if we are truly honoring him with our lives. Even in the lifestyle things like food and drink, hobbies, etc., were we paying too much fealty to a former religion or a former way of life? And if we were, well, what's at stake? And there are rewards in heaven. Lutherans don't like to talk about that, but there are truly rewards in heaven for the things we do, particularly good works and things that honor him. We don't know the exact nature of these rewards, but you wouldn't want to lose one on account of paying too much attention to weaknesses in your faith. You wouldn't want to lose your reward for hurting people with your expression of freedom, you don't want to lose those rewards, and nor do you even want so much as a, hey, you should not have done that from our God. The law accuses, 
And the law even accuses us when we are still free and not, strictly speaking, sinning. We'll go into this next week with how everything not done in faith is sin. Even things done in weak faith can start pushing that boundary. So we do have to be a little careful with how we live our lives and do a bit of self-reflection there, knowing that we are going to be judged with how we applied the freedom we have in Christ. But that does not mean that salvation is at stake. If you are a true baptized believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised you heaven. You have the full assurance of the faith. It's not about works plus faith salvation, where, oh no, I'm going to have a bajillion years in purgatory because I screwed up and I did that one tiny sin or something like that. No, that's not us. That's not what Christianity preaches from the Bible. And nor is it the case that God looks at you and goes, oh my goodness, I saw what you did with that Twitter account. You were the most cantankerous butthole I have ever seen in how you treated other believers. Uh, now you go to hell. No, we rightly fear God. Absolutely. But we also rightly hold on to his promises of salvation. And we also rightly understand that sometimes the accounting for our behavior comes in this life, not the next one. We should be thankful for when it comes in this life, because it means we have not lost a reward in heaven on that account, should we actually learn our lesson. St. Paul, again, being a good pietist, is calling us to that self-reflection so that we, as individuals and part of a greater whole, can serve God and have a living faith which honors him. We will cover more details on that as we read the rest of Romans chapter 15 next week. But until then, may we rejoice in the freedom that God has given us but also be wise enough to know where we need to incorporate a little bit of discipline. Not because of external pressures, not anymore, but instead because we wish to honor the Lord. Catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.